0: All right. Well, thank you again to our praise team for leading us in worship and song this morning. It's good to see everyone. It's good to be back. Kathy and I were this past week uh, in Illinois uh, for her to attend the uh, Shepherds' Wives Conference, which was actually hosted by our home church, where we served for some twenty years, and we did have a great time visiting with friends and family throughout the week. But. But the highlight for me really, was uh, this past Sunday, where I had the privilege of teaching a combined adult Sunday school class at the church that I grew up in, which is a different church in the, the Springfield area. Uh, it was really a blessing to see so many folks who had helped me in my formative years, those who had come alongside of me to help to teach me the Bible, encourage me as a young boy, but it was kind of funny actually. Uh, There was this overwhelming theme when some of these people first saw me again. Several of the folks said to me, they said, wow, you're starting to look just like your father. And I didn't know whether to take that as a compliment or as an insult, but I I do look at some old photos and I do see some resemblance with my father for sure. Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 5. And as we come to this passage this morning, we find Jesus in a position of explaining to the Jews his resemblance of his Father. Not that they looked alike, but that they are alike. While distinct in their person, God the Father and God the Son are equal in essence. Jesus was sent to the earth by his Father to reveal God to man. Jesus is God. This is one of the great truths of the Bible. And this truth that Jesus is God must be believed and must be embraced for a person to receive eternal life. In other words, you cannot believe in a false Jesus and be a Christian you cannot deny the deity of Jesus Christ and be a true Christ follower. But if you're hearing this for the first time, it may be somewhat confusing to learn of the nature of God, who He is. So I want to help you with that this morning as we begin our message. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 says that God is one, right? in that there is but one God. But that one God has revealed himself to man as three co-equal, co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. So God has been described in the scriptures as a trinity. The word trinity is not mentioned in the scriptures, but it comes from the Latin word trinitas, meaning three in one, or a triad. One God, three co-equal, co-eternal persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And while the full revelation of God was not clearly revealed until the New Testament, there, there was a number of excellent Old Testament passages that reveal the nature of who God is. And perhaps the best of those is found in Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 16, And it says this, this is a prophetic passage where the pre-incarnate Christ is speaking. Jesus says, come near to me, listen to this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. Notice, and now the Lord God, meaning the Father, has sent me, meaning the Son, and His Spirit. One God, three co-equal, co-eternal persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we could spend all morning unfolding the Bible's teaching that Jesus is God. But obviously, we don't have time to do that. But I do want to give you some truths that I think will be extremely helpful for you. First, we know that Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, right? The very first words of God's inspired revelation to us is letting us know that God created the heavens and the earth. Well, the word for God there in Genesis 1-1 is Elohim in the Hebrew. And the I-M ending of the word makes it plural, just like adding an S in the English. So from the very first verse in the Bible, we find an unfolding of the plurality of the Godhead. And so we find there in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 that it was God who created the heavens and the earth, right? God created the heavens and the earth. Now, if we fast forward to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And you can turn there if you'd like. You can keep your finger in John chapter 5. And if you'd like to turn to Colossians chapter 1, you can. Otherwise, I'll read it to you. But we find that it says that Jesus created the heavens and the earth. Jesus created the heavens and the earth. So referring to Jesus, Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and, and, and Paul's really speaking of Jesus' pre-existence there, and we should note in that passage that Jesus is not the first created, as some of the cults would teach, but Paul writes that he is the firstborn. And I'm going to circle back and talk about that more in just a moment. But he goes on to say, for by him all things were created, meaning Jesus, by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so Jesus is not only the creator of all things, he is indeed the sustainer of all things. And he's also the head of the body, the church. And he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, again, We know that Jesus isn't the first to die, nor is he the first to be resurrected. So, this word firstborn cannot mean first created. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And that's the key here that Jesus will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, whether things on the earth or in the heavens, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Now, I do want you to turn to Psalm 89. I think it's important. uh, And this is something that I want to arm you with this morning, that uh, if you are in discussion with someone who wants to use this passage in Colossians chapter 1 concerning Jesus being the firstborn. Here's exactly where you can take them to Psalm chapter 89 and verse 27. So keep your finger in John chapter 5. We're going to get there. But I want to show you this here in Psalm 89 and verse 27. And all of this is really important as, as we lead up to our passage this morning psalm chapter 89 and verse 27 again keying in on this idea of jesus being the firstborn what does that mean well psalm 89 and verse 27 says i will make him the firstborn the highest of the kings of the earth now in context here he's talking about yahweh's covenant with david right And again, we're keying in on the use of this word firstborn here. And we know that David was not physically the firstborn of his family, right? In fact, he was the youngest of his brothers. And so just like in Colossians 1, this term firstborn is being used in a figurative manner. And you notice here in verse 27 of Psalm 89 that the term firstborn is qualified with the phrase, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so this helps us to understand the intended meaning of the word firstborn here. Firstborn here is used to mean exalted to the highest place, just like in Colossians chapter 1. In other words, what these authors are saying is that Jesus is preeminent. He is the firstborn of all creation, and he is the firstborn from the dead in that he is exalted to the highest place or the highest position. You remember the the purpose of why John wrote this, this gospel? It was to display the deity of Jesus Christ, who came as the sinless lamb of God to provide salvation, eternal life for those who would believe in him. And John explains his purpose in writing in John chapter 20 and verse 31, when he says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and who He is to be saved. There is no getting around the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. There is only one way to the Father, and it's through the Son, Jesus Christ, who is God who John proclaimed as the Lamb of God, the sinless Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God, the one who was sent as a lamb to the slaughter to die in the place of sinners, the sinless Son of God. Of course, this is how John begins his gospel by saying in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. And you remember when we went through this, The word, word, there is the Greek word logos, the visible, tangible expression of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. In other words, whoever the word is, all things came into being through the word. It says that not even one thing came into being that has come into being outside of the Word, the Logos, Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God, the visible, tangible expression of God. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, the Apostle John wrote, and the Word, the Logos, became flesh and dwelt among us. So it, it's no; it, they're, they're not trying to veil who he's speaking of here. He's speaking of Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. He dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. Meaning God, the father who is spirit. No one has seen the father at any time. God, the only son who is in the arms of the father. He has explained him. He has explained him. How do we know about God? Well, we know about God through special revelation, the revelation of of the scriptures to us. But we also know about God through the revelation of Jesus Christ, who came to the earth as a babe in a manger, So no one has seen God at any time. God, the only Son, who is in the arms of the Father, He has revealed Him, He has explained Him. And again, the word, word there is that Greek word, logos, which means the visible, tangible expression of God. And so because Jesus is God, He is obviously equal with God, (laughs) right? So all of that is paramount as we come to our passage this morning. So this morning in our text, we find more, proof of Jesus' equality with God. And so, as we move throughout verses 17 through 24 today, we're going to uncover four ways that Jesus is equal with God. Four ways that Jesus is equal to God. And the first is we find in verses 17 through 20 that He is equal to God in His works. He's equal to with God in his works. So I want to go back to verse 17 here of chapter 5 and work our way forward. Verse 17, But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all the things that He Himself is doing, and the Father will show Him greater works than these that you will marvel. So I love the clarification here as John begins. And and you remember, Jesus was being criticized for healing the paralytic man near the pool of Bethesda uh, because the Jewish leaders considered that working on the Sabbath, okay? So that was a big deal to the Jewish leaders of the day. And they heard and saw perhaps that Jesus had healed this man, well, the word got around quick, and the Jewish leaders considered that working on the Sabbath. Now, the Pool of Bethesda is located in Jerusalem. It's on the north side of the, of the Temple Mount, and I was there in 2018. It's, it's an elaborate structure. It's an, it's an elaborate pool complex with five arched porticos. And it was back, and back in Jesus' day, it was a very popular place for those who had illnesses or those who had disabilities. There was this uh, legend that was going around. Pastor Flip mentioned it last week. Uh, there was this legend that was going around that if you went to the Pool of Bethesda and you got in at the right time when the water was bubbling, that perhaps you could be healed of your disability or of your illness or of your sickness. And so the people would just flock to the pool of Bethesda, just waiting in line to be able to go down and hopefully hit the jackpot and be healed from their disability. The Sabbath, it's important for us to know, the Sabbath was from sundown on Friday evening to sundown on Saturday evening, okay? Sundown on Friday evening to sundown on Saturday evening. And for those of you who are going to be traveling with us to Israel in November, you're going to see how most Jewish people still guard the Sabbath from any form of work. And I've mentioned this before, but it is so profound uh, to even think about that most hotels have a special Shabbat elevator or a Sabbath day elevator that automatically opens and closes on its own, it stops at every floor of the hotel, so you do not have to work by pressing the button. That's how serious they are, many of the Orthodox Jews, how serious they are about honoring Shabbat, about honoring the the Sabbath day. So, Jesus wants the Jewish leaders to know some stuff, After all, He is God. And He wants them to know that the Sabbath wasn't instituted by God for His own benefit, but it was instituted for the benefit of man. In other words, the restriction of not working on the Sabbath didn't apply to God. It didn't apply to Jesus, who is God. Sure, God rested on the seventh day of creation, but it wasn't because He was tired He rested on the seventh day because he wanted to set an example for man, that man needed to rest. Man needed to prioritize rest at least one day a week. And of course, a lot has changed over the last 20, 30, 40 years, but there was an acknowledgement about something special about Sunday when I was a kid. So we did not have baseball games on Sundays. We did not have basketball games on Sundays. We didn't even have practice on Sundays because there was something about that day that was set apart. Even in a non-Christian culture, there was something about a day of rest. Now, it doesn't mean that people didn't mow their grass. It didn't mean that people wouldn't go out to the store or, or any number of things on a Sunday. But there was just some setting aside of that day as special. And believe it or not, whether you believe it or not, I, I literally on a Wednesday night, because some of the kids on the team would go to church on Wednesday night, there were no activities on Wednesday nights either. So there was a setting aside because people would be a part of their local body, their their church on a Sunday morning. And so all this is new. All this is new. I was just talking with a a father and his son who's a fantastic athlete, uh, was actually the Chicago Player of the Year as a freshman. And I was talking to him and his father this past week. High honor, high honor honor. And they were telling me about all of these tournaments and these AAU opportunities and all these different, none of that was happening when I was a kid. And we played at a pretty high level, but none of that stuff was happening because there was a setting aside of the Sabbath in the minds of people. Now, Sunday is not the Sabbath. Right? I, I mentioned to you earlier that Friday evening sundown to Saturday evening sundown was the Sabbath. But we worship on Sunday as a church because Jesus was resurrected on a Sunday. But that still is a day that sort of is set aside as a special day. A lot of times it's called the Lord's Day. We set it aside. We, we need rest. And this was, this was the purpose of, Jesus, of of the Lord resting on the 7th on the day he's setting an example for man who needs to prioritize rest so god the father was working he says god the son is working and because of that the jews wanted to kill jesus but they wanted to kill him not only because he healed the paralytic man on the sabbath but because he was calling god his own father which would make him equal with god they knew what jesus was saying they knew what Jesus was claiming. And so does Jesus shrink back from that? Does he say, well, no, 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 wait a minute, let me clarify. No. He doesn't back away an inch from their observation that He is making himself equal with God. Instead, it says here, he doubles down and he takes the opportunity to teach them about who he is. He says in verse 19, truly, truly, the son can do nothing unless it is authorized by the father. And this helps us to to understand the perfect unity within the Godhead. So not to be missed here is the sovereign plan of God. Ephesians 111 reminds us that God is always sovereignly in control of all things. He's working all things in accordance with the counsel of his secret sovereign will. Psalm 103 and verse 19 says, His sovereignty rules over all. So, what does it mean to be sovereign? We use that terminology a lot about God. He is sovereign, it means he's supreme. He's supreme over all. He's in control of all things. Some of these countries east of the U.S., they have a sovereign ruler. They call him the sovereign ruler of our country or our state. What does that mean? It means that his word goes. He is, no one is above him, he controls everything. And God is 100% in control of all things. His sovereignty rules over all. And so why do I mention about God's sovereign will? Because it was not yet time for Jesus to be killed. They can talk about it. They can say that they want to kill Jesus, but Jesus would not go to the cross one second before it was appointed unto him to do that. And in the same way, We too have a sovereignly appointed time to die. I did a funeral yesterday, a dear lady um, who lived to be 89 years of age. And it was out in Jonestown. The place was absolutely packed. I didn't speak of this passage in Hebrews chapter 9 in verse 27 yesterday that says, and inasmuch as it is appointed for men once to die, and after this comes the judgment, but we all have an appointment with death. We understand that, right? We're not going to circumvent God's sovereign decree, God's sovereign plan for us. God, before the foundation of the world, has a sovereign plan and sovereign decree. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. So we're not going to live one second shorter than our appointed time. We're not going to live one second longer than our appointed time. And some people get ridiculous with that, by the way. So they're reckless. They live with reckless abandon. I, said, I say to people all the time, we don't want to test the sovereignty of God by jumping out in front of a bus. Right? I mean, there's something to God who, in his sovereign plan, we're not robots, right? Right? we're not robots. We're culpable for our sin. We're culpable for our actions. We're held responsible for our decisions. That's why the Bible's filled with commands. So we'll stand before Christ one day at the judgment seat of Christ. We'll give an account for how we've lived our lives for him, how we follow the very commands of God. So we're not robots. We don't believe in fatalism. We don't believe that God has determined all things and we can do whatever we want in our minds because what's the use? What's the What's the use of praying? God's going to bring about what he wants to bring about in his own timing. What's the use of evangelizing? God's going to save whom he's going to save when he wants to save them. That's not, that's not what we find in scripture. Somehow, some way, God is 100% completely sovereign over things, over all things. He has this sovereign decree that he has declared before the foundation of the world. And yet within the decree, somehow we're responsible for all of our actions, all of our attitudes, whether we want to obey the revealed will of God that we have in his His word. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men once to die and then the judgment, it was not yet the time for Jesus to go to the cross. You see, there was much more that Jesus had to say. There was much more that Jesus had to do. And there were so many other lives that he needed to touch along the way before he would go to the cross to die on behalf of sinners. It was not yet the appointed time for Jesus. And Jesus affirms here that if they thought that this miracle of hearing the paralytic man was amazing, just wait. Just wait. He's just getting started. There are more spectacular miracles ahead. But what is essential for us to grasp here is that this is the pivot point where Jesus became hated and hunted by the Jewish elite. It was at this time that he became their target. It was at this time he became the hunted. And so Jesus is equal with God in his works. And now second, he is equal to God in his power in his power. Look at verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. You talk about doubling down. (laughs) Talk about doubling down. Jesus says here that because he's equal with God, he too has the power to raise the dead and give them new life. And this power is indiscriminate. He can raise from the dead whomever he wishes, whenever he wishes. That's power. Whether it be physical life or spiritual life, Jesus is the ultimate power source of life. And he works in perfect harmony with the Father in doing so. For example, if you just want to flip over a page to John chapter 6 and verse 37, Jesus says there, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So Jesus was sent to the earth on a purpose, on a mission, The mission was to come and to die in the place of sinners, to die in the place of all of those people whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life, all of those whom God had chosen, Ephesians 1, 4, before the foundation of the world. His mission was to come and to die in the place of those people. And in time, every single one of them will come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that coincides with it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. God's in charge of our life. He's in charge of our death. We're not going to die one second earlier or one second later than his intended time. And, and there are people that do come to faith in Christ on their deathbed. It's a rarity, I think, but I believe that that's true. All of the things that they've heard their whole life finally come to a point in their hearts that they realize that this is true that Jesus is the son of god and by believing in him i may have life eternal sometimes it's the most sobering of experiences that will bring us to fall on our knees before a holy and righteous god but john 6:37 talking about the unity within the godhead All of those whom the Father had chosen before the foundation of the world will in time come to faith in Jesus. Not a single one of them will be lost. To me, me, I'm like a little kid. Honestly, when I read the Bible, it is so awesome for me, and I've been doing this for a long time, to see Jesus showing his power. I've read this story a hundred times. And yet, as I've gone through it this past week, my appreciation for God, my appreciation for Christ, it's just, it's off the charts. This is what He does, this is who He is. Don't make Jesus a mundane part of your life. A throw in, extra napkins when you go to Domino's and get pizza. He's not a throw in. He's the ruler of our lives. Bow your knee to Christ. You know, it's amazing to me how people like to put Jesus in a box. As if they can determine who Jesus is. Well, yeah, we believe in Jesus. But, you know, we don't get too radical about it. We you know, yeah, of course he he I mean, yeah, I mean, the Bible talks about Jesus, and he he's a good guy, for sure. We're going to make some commercials about him, he even show it during the Super Bowl. Be careful not to try to put Jesus in a box, to make him something he is not. You see, Jesus hates sin because he is God. He is holy God. Can you imagine living on the earth? You get, you get fed up with all the nonsense that you see, right, in, on the news. I mean, we look at the news and we go, oh my goodness, are you serious? This is the craziest thing. I, I never in my lifetime thought that I'd ever see anything like this. Can you imagine being God, the sinless son of God, and coming down to the earth and living amongst sinners and seeing the worst of people. I mean, intimately seeing the worst of people where you are holy and righteous and perfect and yet you come down from the glories of heaven sent for a purpose by God to reveal God to man and to die in the place of sinners and you got to put up with this for 33 years? Everywhere you go, Jesus never had a sinful thought, idea, or action and they want to kill him? Does that make any sense? He's around sinners everywhere he goes. He's the only sinless man ever. And he's around sinners constantly. Can you even imagine? I don't know if I would have love for sinners like he does. Every moment of every day, people rejecting his law. And then they want to kill him because he's perfect, because he's God. He's just revealing to them who he is. He says, I and the Father are one, John 10 and verse 30. I and the Father are one. I am God. You are right. And because he said that, they want to put him to death. And so there are people that like to put Jesus in a box but Jesus is God. He can do whatever He chooses whenever He chooses to do it. He can raise whomever He wants from the dead that He wants to raise from the dead. He can heal anyone at any time that He wants to heal anyone. He can do whatever He wants to do. So, Jesus is equal to God in His works, in His power, and now third... He is equal to God in His judgment, in His judgment. Look at verse 22. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. So in the incarnation, Jesus willingly placed Himself under the submission of God the Father, right? But because they're one in essence, they're in perfect harmony with one another. The Father has given all judgment to the Son. And the son's judgment will be carried out in the exact way that the father would have carried it out. But if you remember, Jesus' primary purpose in coming to the earth was not to enact judgment, but to reveal God to man and to save sinners. But those who reject him seal their own fate, and they become recipients of His righteous judgment. In other words, while God is sovereign over the salvation of the souls of men, no man will ever be turned away if they desire to repent of their sin and turn to Jesus in faith. Again, man is 100% culpable for his sin and 100% responsible for the consequences of his sin. You want to flip back a page to John three seventeen and 18. It says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 6-8 It says, for after all, it is only right for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to those who are afflicted along with us when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is sovereign, man is responsible. God is in complete control of all things, and yet man is responsible to believe and to obey. We fast forward to Acts chapter 17 and verse 31. This is long after Jesus had gone to the cross and was resurrected from the dead. It says, because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, Christ, whom he has appointed, having furnished Proof to all people by raising him from the dead. But those whom he has redeemed will not be condemned. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we will never be condemned for our sin. We'll never face the due penalty of our sin, which is death, spiritual death, physical death. We'll never face that because of what christ has done for us and saving us from the penalty of our sin there's no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus but there is condemnation for those who are not in christ jesus i alluded to it a little bit earlier but even those of us who know christ as our savior speaking of judgment it's not the same kind of judgment but we will stand before the lord and give an account for how we've lived for him 2 Corinthians 5 talks about the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, where every Christian, can you imagine? Can you, I think of it all the time. It motivates me to try to stay on the right path in the right circumstances to do the right thing before God because I'm going to stand and give an account. I did a lot of things when I was a kid. My dad never found out about it. with me? I didn't go home and tell him. I didn't want to face his fury. I didn't want to face his wrath. If he found out about it, I'll have to own it and deal with it. Jesus knows it all. We'll stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ. Not to be condemned for our sin, but to give an account as to how we've lived for Him. That should motivate us to live righteously in this life. So Jesus is the judge of every man, woman, and child. He withholds His judgment and condemnation from those who by faith have received Him as Savior and Lord, but He will enact His judgment on those who reject Him. And so Jesus is equal to God in His works, in His power, in His judgment. And now, as we close it out for this morning, verses 23 and 24, we find that Jesus is equal to God in His honor. In His honor. Look at verse 23. So that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears My word and believes in Him who sent Me has eternal life. And does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And so we've just considered that Jesus is equal to God in his works and his power and his judgment. So it only makes sense that he's also equal in the honor that is due his name. And that's exactly what Jesus says here. He even emphasizes the truth of this reality when he says, truly, truly. So what that means is, this is true. This is true. It's 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 a repetitive thought to re-emphasize the truth of what he's saying. Truly, truly. He said it twice. This is true. This is true. Because God the Father and God the Son are equal in their essence. You cannot honor the Father without honoring the Son and vice versa. They are one. And that's exactly what Jesus said in John 10 and verse 30. I and the Father are one. And so the Son is in no way less than the Father. He just has a different role and function within the Godhead. But above all, He is to be highly exalted, right? Philippians 2, 9 through 11, pretty clear. Paul writes to the church at Philippi, For this reason God highly exalted him, meaning Christ, and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Every person that God has ever created will one day acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They will bow their knee in humble submission to Jesus who is God. Whether they know Him as Savior or they don't, every knee will bow. Every man, every woman, every child, will one day give Jesus the honor that is due him as God. Every person who has ever lived on the face of this earth will one day bow the knee to Jesus. They will either do so as one of his children or as his enemy, but everyone will acknowledge him as Lord and Master. Jesus says here, all who hear his word, and believe in the God of the Bible, and his plan of salvation will never come into judgment, but they will receive eternal life. So, everyone's at a crossroad, right? Some of us have already turned. We've already saw our sin. God's opened our eyes to our sin, and we, we've already made the turn. But there are a lot of people that are sitting at the intersection. Which, which way... Which way do I go? In Illinois, all, at least where we're from, all the roads are north and south, east and west. None of this to go there. We don't have that. East and west, north and south. A lot of intersections. So you can go north, you can go south, you can go east, or you can go west. And you can sit there and you can see for miles because there are no hills. Literally one of the funniest things, and I'm going to take a picture of this and, and share this with you sometime because it is so funny to me. On the back road to get to where we ministered before we moved to Pennsylvania, there's a road, and it's a north-south road. And so off the interstate, you can take a turn and you can go this back road. And I am not kidding you. You would laugh. You would, you would roar. There is a sign, literally a yellow sign, that says hill, okay? I'm not kidding you. It's like this. <laughs> that's it. Hill. I'll take a picture of it. Thanks for letting us know. You want to see a hill, look out my back window at my house. It's big hills in the, in the background. But everyone's at a crossroad. And there may be some here today that's at a crossroad. You, you're just sitting there at the intersection. You just heard everything you need to know about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation. You've just heard everything you need to know to respond. And you know what? You're going to be held accountable for what you've just heard today. You're at a crossroad. What are you going to do with this Jesus? What are you going to do with him? Are you going to embrace him for who he is? by faith or are you going to reject him you know all throughout the gospel of John we we, we run into this idea of the crossroad where are we going to go what's the purpose why did God send Jesus who is he how does it apply to me If you need Christ as your Savior, please see us today. We'd love to spend as much time as possible to take you through and explain to you the riches of Christ, the salvation that He provides through Jesus. This is who Jesus is. It gets better. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Son, Jesus. Thank You that He loves us and cares for us, that He lived a perfect life for 30 years three years or so. And he went as the sinless Lamb of God to the cross of Calvary. He was killed by sinners. Killed by sinful people. But he willingly died to pay for the sin of all who would believe in him. And Lord, I pray if there's someone here today that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior and Lord, that today would be the day. Open their eyes to the truth of the gospel today. We thank you and we praise you. In the name of Jesus, amen.